Uh, today in our passage in Ephesians, if you want to go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 6, that's where we're going to be. Paul was dealing with really what's one of the more troubling institutions that has ever existed for the human race, and it was the issue of slavery. And he deals with it in a way that is quite unusual, I think, if we read it, uh, because we might expect him to say one thing that he does not. We might feel like he stops a little bit short. And uh, I think there's some reasons for that, that, that Paul might uh, be found to have had in some other places in the scripture. But for our purposes today, we're really going to look at this and I think find our best application from this passage of scripture in dealing with what it's like for us to live under the authority of folks where we were in a working relationship. If you're in a working relationship, you're probably under someone's authority. You may have some authority. And we'll certainly look at that this morning. But I do think that to be kind of running past the original meaning of this scripture and to not deal with it in the context uh, for us would be a little bit of a misstep. And so I'm going to spend a moment talking about that, particularly talking about that for us as a church. I think it's important. So let's read Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll read verses 5 through 9 this morning. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. This is an important passage of scripture for us to acknowledge, particularly in light of the denomination in which we are in. We are a Southern Baptist church, and I said denomination, and that's actually an incorrect statement. We're actually a convention of churches, and the difference between a convention and a denomination is subtle, but it is important. A denomination uh, is led from the top down, and if you grew up maybe in a different denomination, you know that the denomination might own your building, they might own your property, they might send you the curriculum that you are supposed to do. They might even inform the preaching of the pulpit. They might even in some denominations send your pastors to you. We are a convention of churches. And in fact, in a month, we'll be at that convention. Several of us will go and represent our church as messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, but our convention was formed in 1845 in the United States, unfortunately, by people who very much appreciated and condoned the institution of slavery and worked in such a way as to promote that and, and did not see it necessary to promote the abolition of slavery. And you have to kind of say that and you have to mention that because it is part of our history. And the convention dealt with this, the convention leadership dealt with this in 1995. And in fact, if you've been watching convention news and I hope you haven't because that means you probably don't have much of a life. Uh, I hope you're watching other news, you know, but well, we keep up with convention news uh, because it's our job. Uh, if you've been watching this over the last couple of decades, the idea of race and racial reconciliation and relationships has been at the forefront of the Southern Baptist Convention and rightly so. You can't have the past that we've had 
and not have that come back to haunt you at some point where people say, hey, this is an unfortunate reality and we're going to have to deal with it. And in 1995, the convention leadership did deal with it by publicly doing uh, the work of forgiveness and reconciliation with the African-American community and denounced all of its past as it should have done probably a long time before. And then in 2017, if you may remember, when, when there was this kind of sweeping thing going across the country with white supremacy kind of bubbling up and things like that, the convention denounced that, and the messengers of that convention denounced that again Rightfully so. And I've never pastored a church uh, that has been any other way in this convention. By the time I came along to be a pastor in the early 2000s, that was a, a normative thing. It wasn't an unusual thing. And uh, you might be surprised to know that we have African-American congregations that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, Latino congregations that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention, Korean congregations that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. All of that is now... I hope, part of our past. And, and in fact, in the churches that I've pastored, they'd all, they have actually all been multi-ethnic. And in fact, in our church today, we'll have Latinos and Asians and blacks and whites teaching Sunday school and leading in various other forms all throughout our church. So if you're new here and you're wondering, where do you guys fall on the issue of these things? Racism is wrong. There's no other way to put it. It's the universal sin. It's found all over the world. I've told you before, it's not the American sin. It's a universal sin. And we must all go before the Lord and deal with that. And I think as we think about what we see in this passage of scripture, one of the things we might ask is, it feels like Paul's stopping short of calling this wrong. Well, what's, what's going on here? Why is he doing that? Why didn't Paul do more? And it's an important question for Seal. It seems like he doesn't condemn it. And I would point out that he doesn't condone it either. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, Paul deals with this, particularly if you've never read the book of Philemon, you should, because he deals with it with a person who had been in uh, uh, an ownership position and a person who'd been in a slave, enslaved position and Paul says, you guys are actually brothers in the Lord and you need to receive him back as a brother and not as a slave. So I want you to think about it that way. But why didn't he? Well, I want you to think about the world that Paul was living in. It's said that half of the Roman world at this time was enslaved, perhaps as many as 60 million people enslaved. And he's writing to a church that it's obvious. Remember when we made the shift in chapter five and we moved to chapter six, he's now talking to a church that would have had slave owners and those enslaved in the church. They would have all been part of this. And if you think about what the gospel accomplished in the first century, it's pretty amazing because we've already looked at what gospel life did in marriages because it brought up the status of women. It put husbands in the right place where they should have been. It brought up the status of children so that they weren't throwaway objects anymore for the family. It changed what was a known institution in prostitution and that was no longer looked favorably upon and in fact was, was really pushed out of society. Uh, it, it brought about all these social changes with uh, behaviors that had had been wrong, sexually deviant practices were pushed out of the normal realm of society. And if you think about it, it actually sounds very much like the world in which we're living today. If, if you think about human trafficking, it's still an issue. If you think about sexually deviant practices, it's still an issue. If you think about gospel issues affecting men and women, it's still an issue. But what I want you to see is that what the gospel did in the first century, 
is that it really changed the entire society and it did it by changing one heart at a time. And that's still the gospel way. When the gospel so grips someone's heart, it changes everything about them. And ultimately that's how you change a culture is to change a heart and one heart after another and after another. That's why the gospel message is so important today, that we are sinners, that we are broken, that we are fallen, and that Christ Jesus has died for us so that we might have relationship with God the Father. If you've been paying attention to the little signs in Nashville lately, you know that we're about to have a school board election. And it's been interesting to read some of the material that's come to my house from some of the school board members because they're very attuned to what's going on in the world and maybe even, I should say, nationally in this country with school boards. And they're writing about these things and the pieces that they're giving us. But you know, the way that you change a school, if you want to have a good school, you get better principals, right? Better school board members by getting them to be on God's agenda. You want to have better schools, you have better teachers by getting them to be on God's agenda. You, you want to start at the baseline, though, you get better families and better students who are on God's agenda. It starts with the gospel, and it works its way throughout the entire thing. And so what Paul did here was actually stunning and amazing, and we're going to see it, but Paul changed the world when he said there was no difference between a slave and a master. And actually, like I said about the book of Philemon, when he says, this is your brother, receive him as a brother. It changed the world. As one author has said, and I quote, the apostles approach to this social evil was like that of a woodsman who strips the bark off a tree and leaves it to die. He started with the heart and knew that the heart would ultimately change things. So how does this work for us today? What does it mean for us today? Particularly because we don't have this institution in our country. But it's talking about earthly masters and servants. So let's look at it from the idea of how we work. Let's think about it for, from that perspective for just a moment. And maybe that will give us a little bit of clarity when we show up at our job tomorrow. Maybe it'll give us a little bit of clarity if we're in charge of people tomorrow. Maybe it'll give us a little clarity when we think about serving the company that we work for and what it means for us. And if I could bring it back to you again, it sounds like a broken record, but if we go back to chapter five, this all goes back to one word and it's authority. The authority. We talked about it authority in the church. We talked about submitting to one another. We talked about authority into the home with husbands and wives. We talked about it with parents and children. And, and now he brings it into those earthly relationships that we have. And he says, if we're going to get this right, we have to understand authority. And it starts with the right spirit. Let's look at verse five again because I think that's the jumping off point for this, for everything that he's gonna say. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Now that had to have been quite a difficult pill to swallow, right? Because if you're in a position where someone's in authority in the human realm, where they literally have ownership over you and the apostle's writing this, and he says, you need to treat your masters with a reverential respect just like you would Jesus Christ. That's quite an amazing statement because if you think about it, what power do you have when you're enslaved? What, what would you have to do? About the only thing that you could do would be subtle acts of sub, subterfuge. You know, I mean, just, just small little rebellions where you're hoping things aren't going. Because if you step out of line in the Roman world, your property and the owner has the ability to dispense every kind of uh, punishment that he wants to towards you. And so when Paul says this, it's like, you, that's where you're stopping for me. That's all you've got for me. But if we think about it, we, we serve earthly masters all the time. 
We're, we're in positions of authority. God's a God of order. It's not chaos around here. And when we go to work, we often find ourselves underneath someone with people underneath us and, and doing things like that in a chain of command, so to speak. And the right spirit of how we act as believers when we show up to the office tomorrow, the place we're going to be working tomorrow, means everything. So what he's saying to these folks is you need to carry out the wishes of those who are in authority above you. What would that mean for us? If I show up to work tomorrow, my boss has been tasked with something to do and my job is not to undo what the boss has been told to do. My job is to do everything he needs me to do or she needs me to do to fulfill their vision as long as it doesn't violate what the Lord is telling us from the word, right? I mean, if it's not unethical, it's my job to go do it. And oftentimes we find ourselves in these funny positions where corporate or the boss or, or the manager or whatever doesn't really understand kind of the boots on the ground. I mean, you ever felt that way that somebody above you is telling you you need to do something and you're going, this is never gonna work. And you know what your job is to do is to say it's never gonna work and they say do it anyway and you go die and try. That's the job. That's the work. That's the right spirit. That's the attitude. Uh, and, and he says something here about this that, that we're to do it sincerely. And, and you may have heard this before, but it's, it's been written about many times is that those, that word for us is, is the formation of a couple of different words that you often find in, in Latin, sin and Sarah, without wax. It comes from pottery. When people are making pottery, if they stamp that sincere, I mean, they didn't have wax in the pottery. So if there was a blemish, you could fill it in with wax and kind of hide it. If there was a little crack, you could fill it in. And really the only way you could tell is if you held it up to the light. So when we write a letter and we say something like sincerely, what we're saying is I'm telling you the truth. I've, I've given you my heart, heart's emotion. This has been written to you in the right spirit. And, and when he says to us that we're to honor those who are above us, and what he says is that we're to do it sincerely. In other words, without wax, we're not trying to cover things up and we're not trying to take advantage of things. It's easy to do that. Right? You work at the office and it seems like a simple thing. But we can steal time we could steal something that seems insignificant like a pen or a pad or maybe not pay for our copies at work or, or whatever it might be that just seems insignificant. But for the believer, what Paul's saying here is for us, when we look at our earthly authority that's over us, when we show up at work, we're to, to treat them as we would the Lord and to serve them as we would Christ and to do it with a sincere heart, the right spirit over all of our lives. He tells us why. It's because everything we're doing is for the Lord. Like Everything we do in this life, it's for the Lord. If you would look at verse six with me, he says, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. These believers that he's talking to are actually enslaved. But did you notice that Paul very quickly changed the notion when he said, not just about slavery in the life that you're living, but he said, you're a slave of Christ. That was something that really gripped the apostle. He often referred to himself as the bond servant, the bond slave of Christ. Someone who had actually attached himself in a, in a master slave position by his own volitional will because of what Christ had done for him. If you think about it, Christ had set Paul free. Things were different 
in his life. They'd been totally transformed. He had been free, so he thought, to persecute the church. He'd been chasing after them and persecuting the church. He'd been on the road to Damascus when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. God blinded him. And ever since that moment, he referred to himself as a slave to Christ. We often think about ourselves as being free and we misuse freedom. Freedom isn't, isn't so, that, so that we can do whatever we want. We've been talking about this. It's so that we can be free from sin to serve the Lord. And when he talks about that we are slaves of Christ, I don't think that many of us woke up this morning thinking about ourselves that way. I mean, truthfully, has that crossed your mind this week? Has it really, has it really been impressed upon you that you are a slave to Christ, a bondservant? attached to him, to do whatever he is. It's interesting. We call the Lord Jesus Lord, but we very seldom mean it. We love the savior part. That's a good part. I love to be saved from my sins, but don't you hate it when God meddles with you? It really bothers me. Can we just all be honest for a minute? Don't you hate it when the Holy Spirit comes and knocks on the door of your heart and says, this is not gonna fly. It's not working. Well, well, but, but I thought I could, you can think whatever you want, Jeff, but this is not going to fly. And you try to put it off for a little while. Knocking gets a little louder. Why? If he's Lord, he's Lord of all, he's Lord of my life. And so what Paul says to these believers is when you find yourself working, you do it as unto the Lord, as if you are a slave of Christ, do God's will. And this is an amazing thing when he says, do it from the heart. The word that he uses there, he's talking about your inner being, your emotions, the same word that we get the word psyche from. The very inmost part of your being where your emotions and your mind join together and you serve the Lord by doing what you're doing tomorrow. And oftentimes we forget that we're actually working for the Lord. Do all things as unto the Lord. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, let it be as unto the Lord. Let it glorify God. And so he says that we have to have the right spirit, but we understand that we're doing it for the Lord. And the reason that this becomes important is because there's a promise attached to it. Look at verse seven. It's a summation with a promise. He says in verse seven, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive back from the Lord. I have worked in some very insignificant jobs. I have worked in some places that I honestly just felt like I was earning a paycheck and all I wanted to do was get to the next job. And maybe you felt that way too. Maybe you felt like like it, it was a dead end. I'll never forget coming home the summer after my senior year of college, being very excited to be a college graduate. And my father was working at one of the largest Christian publishers in the world at the time. And he had said, hey, we've got a job for you here this summer. We want you to do it. It's gonna be great. And I said, okay, I'm gonna take it. Uh, Sight unseen, didn't really understand all that I was going to be doing. And when I moved all my stuff home for that summer, the very first night at dinner, he said, hey, we got a little problem. When my dad ever started with, we got a little problem, no good news was ever coming, you know? It was going off a cliff. It wasn't a little problem, it was massive. We got a little problem. There's actually an anti-nepotism clause in our company and you're not gonna be able to work in that job uh, that we had set up for you that I thought was gonna be good for you and I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And I was like, well, that's great. 
I've moved home and I don't have a job. He goes, well, not exactly. I have you a job. And I was like, okay, well, what are we going to be doing? And he goes, well, it's going to be in the basement of the company and you're going to load copiers all day. And I thought, I'm going to load copiers all day. This is exactly what I'd hoped for coming out of college. This sounds amazing. And that's what I did all summer long. I opened the reams and I set them in and shut the door. And I had this, this boss who sometimes wasn't very appreciative that the vice president of the company's son was working in her division, if you might imagine. You know, I mean, not really on her agenda uh, to have what may have looked like a snitch. I don't know. You know, maybe I was a mole. Maybe I was a plant. If she had only known, I wanted to be out of there just as bad as she wanted me out of there. You know what I mean? It was, it was all of that kind of rolled into one. Sometimes you just feel like you're doing that and you, you can just think like, God, why am I doing this? I, I came here to do something different. I thought that there was going to be something different. I thought that I, I didn't sign up for this. I surely didn't go to college so that I could just come and open reams of paper and do this. I mean, surely, Lord, you know how smart I must be. And I think the Lord responded by saying, yes, load the copiers. You know, we'll get started with that and then we'll see what happens. Uh, you, you know, it was a humbling experience because it wasn't what I wanted. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like somebody promised you something, didn't quite work out the way you thought it would? And I don't know. It seems to me that I missed the boat that summer because I didn't read this passage of scripture that said, everything you're doing ought to be done to the Lord because you're God's slave. So if God wants you there, be there and do it. Do it to the glory of God. Now, as he says that, he gives us this promise. And I hope you notice that because verse eight's the promise. It says, knowing whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. We often don't think about that, do we? Is that every good thing that we do, God gives it back to us. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, remember that we're not just working for what happens here on earth. We often so short-sighted about that, but we're working for eternity. We're working for the reward that's going to last. Kirk was right when he said, this world is crumbling. Everything around it is, is crumbling. It, it just doesn't mean anything, you know? Even the awards that you get, have you noticed how, how as you get a few years removed from those kinds of things, they just don't mean quite as much? It changes things. Why? because it's crumbling. But God takes note of everything that we do. When you show up to work tomorrow and you're busy doing the thing that God has told you to do and you're doing it for the Lord with the right spirit, the right attitude, understanding that, that there's a promise associated with this that you're going to receive, but God blesses that. He sees it and he gives it back to us. We said a couple of weeks ago that every moment could be holy even the changing of a diaper, even the most mundane part of your day can be holy when the right mindset grips us as believers to understand that what I'm doing right now, I am doing for the Lord. Well, Paul's talked about what it means to be on the bottom end of the equation and now he flips it to those who would find themselves in authority. For us, that would be employers. Look at verse nine. What it says, masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. That would have been a stunning thing to have been said in a church with people who had always accepted the status quo, always accepted that people were going to be underneath them 
And when he says, you have the same master, the Lord, and there is no favoritism with him, it must have caused them to think a little bit. When we read it, we see that bosses and employees are the same, that there's no favoritism here. And we might think that God has doubly favored the CEO over the parking lot attendant, and that's just not simply true, is it? It, it, it doesn't work out that way. There is no favoritism with the Lord. And in fact, in Galatians, as I've told you, Paul writes, there's neither slave or free, man, woman, Greek, uh, Jew. It's all the same with the Lord. He doesn't look at us any different. And our earthly status is not the same as what our heavenly status is. And that's very important for us to understand, especially as we work with people who are underneath of us in the authority structure. Maybe when you show up tomorrow, you have a position of leadership in your, your company or your business, and you have people working for you. And this is an incredible reminder of that, is that God doesn't see any difference between you, who has the employer, status to the employee or the boss status to the servant status. It's the same. And I want you to think about it like this. We talked about this last week, that children aren't ours. They're a stewardship that God entrusts us with. And when you think about being in charge of a company, in charge of a corporation, in charge of some people that you're managing, it's a stewardship. It's a responsibility given to you by God that you must steward. You don't have absolute authority. God has absolute authority, but God gives you authority over people's lives. And as he does that, it's a stewardship. And it's essential that you see it that way, not as the owner of the company, not as the head of the company, but someone who has been entrusted with people under your charge. That changes things, doesn't it? When you see them, not as just someone to help you achieve what you want to achieve, but when you have a responsibility that goes back to them, to treat them the same way the scripture says, not with threatening them. You don't have to threaten people. You only threaten people that have no power. You don't have to threaten them. We're to be motivators. We're to be encouragers. We're to, to lead in such a way that people get excited about doing what's going on. And I think this is important for us to see. You know, as we live in an employer and employee relationship, one of the things that I would say to anyone who has any authority at work is this, this is just a great life lesson for all of us to remember, is that when you have responsibility, all of the boo-boos and the mess-ups, guess what? They're yours. Every one of them. The ones underneath you, those are yours. And the victories and the successes and the wins, they're ours, right? There's a difference. There's a difference. If I have responsibility, all the boo-boos are mine, but all the victories are ours. It shows up in that way. And if we have that mindset, it changes how we steward the time that we have with people. And this is important because the working relationship that we have with people, so much of your life is spent in a working relationship. If you think about it, your work associates probably get more quality time with you than anyone in your family. I'm, I'm there eight, 10 hours a day, you are too. The waking hours that I have with my children by the time we do all the extracurricular activities and things like that, it's really small, isn't it? So the working relationship's very important for us as believers, because the days and months we spend with our colleagues and putting our hands to the task that God has given us, it has to be more about uh, than, than just building a, like a, a legacy or a building or a company that ultimately is going to go away. We're building something that can go on into eternity when we're investing in the lives of people. 
we're just building wealth or a company or a legacy, that only lasts as long as we last. And one day your children are going to spend your money in ways that will make you roll over in your grave. And one day the next person who takes over your company is going to totally change it and run in a different direction with it. And you'll think it's crazy that they've done that and you won't understand it because it doesn't last. But what can last is that when we understand that we have a responsibility to the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him every day that we go to work. No matter if we're just an employee of the company or someone with responsibility in the company. And I kind of had me thinking this week about considering our callings. You have a calling. I have a calling. Mine looks a little different than yours. Yours looks different than mine. But a lot of times people ask, how do I know what it is that God wants me to do? How, how can I know vocationally? And I've thought a lot about that over the last couple of weeks because it's actually come up in a couple of conversations and, and if you think about it, I think there are three things. And maybe these things would help you if you were going to advise a, a child or a grandchild or a colleague that was thinking about a next step and, and you were thinking about these things. I think there are three things that, that make a sweet spot for us vocationally. The, the first thing that you have to have is an interest in what you're doing. If you're going to long-term live there in, in that, I mean, if you're not interested in it, it's drudgery. I had a friend that one time owned a gas station and uh, from time to time, I would go in and see him and, and I would say, hey man, what's going on today? And he'd say, just another long, hard day at the rock pile every day. He didn't want to do it. He, he was ready to get out of it. In fact, he sold it and, and got into a job that he really liked. He, he didn't want to do that. He wasn't interested in it. It, did, it didn't turn his motor at all. You have to be interested in it. So you find something that, that piques your interest and you start to pursue it and learn about it and, and think about it. And, and then the second thing that has to be there, and, and this is the unfortunate part for many of us, is that ability has to be there. Interest without ability is a hobby. Do you know what I mean? Shake your head yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So some of you are like, I, I'm still holding on that I'm gonna get that recording contract here in Nashville. It's coming, you know? <laughs> me too, by the way. I mean, I always thought that God wanted me to be part of the band Bon Jovi and not a pastor, but I don't know what happened. Um, anyway, you, you have ability, don't you? you? You have to have it because interest without ability really is a great hobby. I mean, there's a lot of people that play golf, but there's very few people that are on the PGA Tour. There, there's a lot of people that enjoy designing and decorating in their home and, and kind of playing around with that. But there's very few people that can get a design firm started or a show with that. I mean, it, it, there's, there has to be something with ability that makes it there. We, we often say this about, you know, there are how many NFL quarterbacks in the world or how many ladies get to go to the Olympics in gymna, gymnastics. I mean, it's, it's very small, right? So interest has to meet ability. But the secret sauce is number three. It's God's calling. When interest and ability meet God's calling, you have something. When interest and ability meet God's calling, you have something. You remember the life of Moses? Moses is such an interesting character study, isn't he? Because he's born in a dangerous time. The Bible tells us that He's born into slavery and yet he was not a slave because 
of an interesting day where Pharaoh's daughter saw a little basket floating in the reeds and took this little Jewish boy and made him her own son. So he grows up in the palace and he's equipped with the best education that he could have ever gotten. But his interest was actually somewhere else. His interest was back with his mother and father's people. It's really what he wanted to do. And in fact, he tried. Do you remember? The Bible says that he saw an Egyptian man beating a Jewish man and he came and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand so that no one would notice. He, he wanted to release the bonds of captivity over his people. And that actually, that one event made him flee. He was rejected by his people. What are you, a judge, an arbitrator? You're gonna kill me like you did the Egyptian? And when he found out that people knew, he, he fled. In 40 years, the scripture says that he lived in the wilderness area called Midian. Just hanging out just being a shepherd, not really thinking that that's going to be that useful. He found out it was pretty useful when God showed up one day and said, I know you're interested in this. You weren't quite equipped, but you are now 40 years later. And I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh and you'll understand how to lead our people and how to interact with him. You'll understand the two cultures And oh, by the way, you're going to be on a long walk. You don't know it yet. But all this time spent in Midian and working with the sheep, it's going to be invaluable for you. There was an interest. There was an ability. But there was a calling. And when God called him, he began to supernaturally equip him. When we think about what we're going to do with our lives, that's a great recipe for us to seek the Lord. Find the things that you're interested in. Find the things you have ability in. Surrender those things to the Lord and allow the Lord to shape that and use that. And you'll find that some of the smallest, what you thought were most insignificant things of your life, of your journey, become massive in what God had planned for you later. He's not wasting any of it. And so maybe today you're stuck in a place where you're like, you know, I don't really like my working situation. I'm not a fan of it. Well, go and serve the Lord there with all your heart and see what God might open up for you. Go and serve the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, right there. Be the best Christian witness that you can be by just showing up every day. And if you work there as unto the Lord, it will change things. God will reward every good thing you do. If you're in leadership at the place where you work, don't forget that your employees are not expendable. They're under your authority and You have a stewardship towards them that you're responsible for. Make sure that as you do that, you remember that you're no better than them. There's no favoritism with God. God's just placed you there for a moment, giving you the reins for a moment. But for us, we understand that we're serving a higher master. We're sending the things on to heaven. It's not about us. We're not trying to build a legacy here trying to build a legacy in heaven. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. Maybe you would just say, Pastor, um, I'm struggling at my job. It's difficult. And maybe that's because you have somebody that's overbearing on you. Have you had the right attitude? 
Have you had the attitude that says, I'm, I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ right where I'm at? Have you been quietly rebelling? Subtly working against? Would you just think about that, examine that with the Lord right now? If you are in a leadership position where you're at, have you been leading as if the people God has placed in your charge are a stewardship, a ministry of stewardship? Would you ask the Lord to equip you for that? Maybe you feel like you're in over your head. Ask the Lord to equip you. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that you've given us the ability and the gifts to work. We want to steward those for your kingdom and your purposes. Lord, how we love you. And we often forget, Lord, that we're serving you in everything that we do. Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we've stolen time. Forgive us when we've not had the right attitude. Forgive us when we have been overbearing and forgotten that there is no difference in your eyes between those in authority and those who are under that authority. Lord, you show no favoritism. God, we thank you that when we approach the cross, our skin color doesn't matter, our gender doesn't matter. You see us the same. You see everyone lost. And everyone can be found in Christ. Lord, I pray that for those who will go into the working world tomorrow, that you would bless them with a clarity of mind and heart, that they would serve from their heart, their inmost being, to make where you've planted them better. And for those wondering what their next step is and following you, where you would have them go and, and where you would lead them, Lord, would you make clear the path for them so that they may know where their interests and abilities and calling are all meeting. God, would you use it for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.